Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. Let's get straight to the interview. It is with great pleasure I introduce Karen Smith to the show today. She is a retired forensic detective from Jacksonville, Florida. After retiring, she was the training consultant at the National Forensic Academy at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She is currently a lecturer at the University of Florida for the Forensic Science Graduate Program. She also hosts the podcasts Shattered Souls, A Forensic Detective's Diary, and Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders, available on all platforms. And she is here to talk about The Car Barn Murders. So great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. This is a real treat. Yeah. So this is an almost 90-year-old case, but very personal for you. Would you tell us about your connection to these events and why it was important for you to investigate them? Yeah, that's kind of a little shocker, right? Almost 90 years old. I became aware of this case through my dad. I was a, I call myself a rookie cop in, in 2002. I had been a police officer for about three years at that point. And I flew home from Florida, where I was working in Jacksonville, to Hagerstown, Maryland, where my folks had moved after retirement. And we were, my dad and I were in the garage one morning, and we had just shoveled the snow. And he sat me down and he said, you know, I never told you about Uncle Emery. And I said, who's Uncle Emery? I didn't even know who he was. And dad kind of took a sip of his drink and he said, well, he was murdered. And I went, what? (laughs) What do you you mean he was murdered? And he said, well, it happened in 1935 and and he was killed along with his coworker, James Mitchell, at the trolley office in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And I said, well, why? And dad said, well, it was a robbery. And I, I don't know, it went south, but... You know, everybody kind of thought it was an inside job, but it was never solved. And I went, wait, wait a minute, time out. You're telling me Uncle Emery was murdered and it's unsolved? That's a horse of a different color. And he said, yeah, they they never found out who did it. And then he said that my whole family on my dad's side knew about it, but they never talked about it. And all my great aunts and uncles, my great grandparents, nobody ever talked about it. And I thought, well, that's so weird. First of all, I had no idea there was a murder in our family. Second of all, why wasn't it ever solved? 
So I kind of just took that and, and put it in my, my belt. And I thought about it. And at that time as a rookie, I'd, I didn't know how to work a murder. I'd, I'd never worked a murder at that point. And then I transferred over to the crime scene unit shortly thereafter. And I started working high profile cases and, and murders as a forensic detective. And time went on. And around 2016, my cousin sent my parents a link to a story that NBC Washington, kind of a fluff piece uh, that they had done on the car barn murders, this case. And that video footage had the case file and there was a lot of stuff in it. There were bullets and casings and paperwork and notebooks. And I went, wow, I should really look and see what's in there. Because my dad had told me that they really, he didn't really think they had much left. And when I saw that video, I went, wow, they really have a lot. So I contacted the police department and I was summarily turned down and told that if I wanted to see what was in there, I would have to travel to Maryland. Well, I couldn't do that at that point. So I let it go again. And a couple of years later, unfortunately, my father passed away in 2018 and I kind of kicked myself and went, you know, I, I really should have pushed harder for the case file. At least I would have been able to give my dad some answers. And after the heartbreak of my dad's passing, I had done a podcast, a first season of my podcast, which were my cases that I investigated. And it was pretty successful. And I thought, what better way to get to season two than to do my uncle's case? So instead of going through the department again, I did a FOIA request for the case file and it was mailed to me about three or four months later. And once I started digging in, I realized that this case went down some really crazy wormholes that I wasn't expecting. So there's the background of how I got the case file. Yeah, yeah. So you, of course, are a, a modern day detective with modern day investigative tools and abilities. We did talk a bit before the interview, and you mentioned you weren't necessarily all that familiar with older American crime. And it must have been really interesting and eye-opening, the differences between how crimes were investigated in the 1930s compared to today. It was a quick lesson. I had a really steep learning curve. Um, and that was fine with me because I, I'm kind of an information junkie anyway. I, if something catches my interest, I'll read every, I'm like a, a hoarder. I'll read everything that I can on the subject. And obviously this case was of interest. So I did have to transport myself back to 1935. The interesting thing is this crime happened um, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And that's just outside of the District of Columbia on the northwest side. And I grew up in Bethesda. That was my hometown. And a lot of the places where I would visit as a child, uh, Brown's Community Store was the same place that my great uncle Emery would go and get a sandwich. So the lunch counter that I rode my bike to in the 70s was the same lunch counter that my uncle Emery would visit when he would take a break from work at the trolley office. So it was kind of transporting myself back not only to my childhood, But back in time into Washington, D.C., Bethesda, Chevy Chase, and that whole era in the 30s, and a lot of the things that I did as a kid came through in the case file, and I recognized the names, the streets, the areas, all of the things, and and they were still there. 
when I was a kid. So it was kind of this really weird going, wow, I, I remember that so well. And it's the same thing that, that they were experiencing back then. So that was a little bit of a revelation for me. So that part of my investigation wasn't really hard to transport myself back to because I recognized so much. A lot of the other stuff with the detectives and the quote unquote gumshoe detective work that they had to do, you know, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, there's no this. They're literally pounding the pavement to find things, to hunt down things and doing sting operations and hunting people down and watching them and spying on them and, you know, pulling them in and giving them the third degree, you know, with a rubber hose of all things to beat a confession out of them. We don't do that anymore. So it was really a different era with a different means and way of doing things. But the interesting thing was the forensics of that day weren't that different than the forensics we do today. Obviously no DNA, but fingerprinting was there. Ballistics comparisons were there. You know, there were some things that they were doing back then that we still use today that haven't changed. Fingerprinting and dusting for fingerprints really hasn't changed that much. Ballistics comparisons and microsco uh, microscopy hasn't changed that much. So that was kind of neat to learn that they were doing the same things that we do now, you know, 88, 90 years later. For sure, yeah. And you, you had to kind of wade into this murky world of the Depression. Prohibition, of course, had just recently been repealed. But many of these corrupt relationships forged between the police and, and criminals still remained intact. Absolutely. Even though Prohibition had ended a couple of years earlier, bootleg liquor was still a huge thing because it was made on the cheap. And, you know, people didn't want to have to pay big money for Canadian whiskey or for other, you know, bottles coming across the Atlantic. Bootleg liquor didn't stop just because prohibition ended. You're dealing with a depression. People didn't have a dime to their name. They were struggling to make ends meet left and right. So, you know, hotshot bootleg liquor coming out of a bathtub, you could buy that for a dime a pint or a dollar a pint as opposed to going to the store and getting Canadian whiskey for double or triple that, well, people are going to buy what they can to satisfy their needs. So the bootleggers were still there. Gambling was huge. You had the numbers racket. You had the horse racing wire racket. You had all of these different gambling things that were coming into fruition. And people were using vice all different types of vice, prostitution, gambling, bootlegging, they were all running amok in the 1930s. So it was kind of this confluence of everybody wanting to make a buck and the money going up the scale to corrupt politicians, corrupt police, and then back down the scale to the runners, the uh, people who were booking bets and booking races and the phone companies were skimming off the top because they were providing the wire service for the horse racing wire racket. Some of the newspapers were making money because they were publishing the racing results to certain people before the general public would know so they could take bad bets on the sly. All of this stuff was going on. So it really was an era of abject corruption up one side and down the other. And that's something that I, 
I had no idea about. And when I was doing my research and I found all this information, I went, wow, they, people were really just trying to make a dollar anywhere they could find it. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what you know about Emery Smith, what his life was like in January of 1935. And did you feel a familial connection with him as you investigated this case? And if so, did that connection grow the further you went in? It did. Uh, Emery Smith, uh, it was Lawrence Emery Smith. He went by Emery. He was my paternal great-grandfather's younger brother. And Emery grew up on a farm in Walkersville, Maryland, the same farm that I visited as a child. So I was familiar with the farmhouse. I knew the layout. I can, I, if I think about it, I can smell it. I can smell the cabbage cooking in the, in the oven with a roast. I, I can smell the fireplace and see the small little farmhouse up on the hill. It was called Seven Springs because there were seven springs on the property. So that's where Emery Smith grew up. He left the farm uh, as a teenager. He had a didn't have very much formal education at all, and he, he was illiterate uh, actually. And he went to go and, and work in the uh, the quarry, the limestone quarry. Left the limestone quarry after he married his first wife, named Myrtle, and he went to go work for the Capital Transit Company, which ran the trolley system all over Washington D.C. and then the outskirts of Maryland and Virginia. And he was hired as a mechanic, a lineman which meant he would climb on top of the trolley and either disconnect or connect the line on top of the trolley. If there were underground wires, he'd disconnect. If it was an overground wire, he'd connect it. And then he was also a night watchman, a part-time night watchman. So he stayed there until uh, he was murdered in uh, January of 1935, January 21st, 1935. So that's what I know about my great, great uncle, Emery and his memory did trickle down. My great aunts and uncles knew him. You know, he would come over to the farmhouse and I have a photo of him with all of my great aunts and uncles when they were kids. So it was a very tight knit family. And unfortunately, I also found out that on the morning that Emery Swift was murdered, his mother, my great, great grandmother, Sarah, had been bedridden with pneumonia and she died on that morning too. She died within an hour of his murder and she never knew. So it was a very tragic day all around for the Smith family. Right, and, and part of the reason he was working that shift, right, was that he had to take time to visit her. It was the night or two before. That night, um, the murders happened on a Monday morning. On Sunday, he drove up to Walkersville to the farm to visit with his mom. He knew that it may have been his last visit with her. And the reason that he was working the midnight shift that night is because he swapped at the last minute with his friend. And uh, he wasn't supposed to be working that night. So would you walk us through the night of January 20th to the morning of January 21st, 1935? Who discovered the bodies? And what did investigators believe had happened after taking a look at the crime scene? Yeah, it was a little bit of um, pandemonium, really uh, just a short walk through. Emery Smith was the mechanic and watchman that night. 
his station was the car barn. That's where the trolleys were parked. And that was on one side of Connecticut Avenue. Across the street was the trolley office. And that's where people would go buy their tickets. There was a little waiting room where the accountants would count the weekly take. And that's what was going on in the office overnight. James Mitchell, the other victim, was the overnight accountant. And he was in the office with his co-worker, John Stout, and they were counting the take. It was $1,249. And they were putting it into canvas bags. Emery Smith came into the office about 3 o'clock, met with John Stout. They both noticed a man in what was called the trainman's room, sort of the locker room-ish. A man was sleeping on the bench. That man's name was Francis Gregory. and He was a, a trolley conductor who decided to stay the night. And Emery Smith left. He went back across to the barn. He wanted to take a nap in a trolley now that his work was done. John Stout left at about 3.40. That left James Mitchell in the money cage and Gre- uh, Francis Gregory sleeping in the trainman's room, Emery Smith across the street at the barn. At about 5.10 in the morning, a man named Parker Hanna showed up for his morning shift, and he knocked on the front door of the trolley office, expecting James Mitchell to allow him entry. And when he didn't get an answer, he tried the doorknob and the door opened. And Parker Hanna walked in the hallway and he looked into the money cage, which was locked, and James Mitchell was lying dead on the floor. So two other workers showed up. They all panicked. Those two went down the road to the Chevy Chase Fire Department to call the police. And when the police showed up, it was lead detective Theodore Volton, Sergeant Leroy Rogers, and Officer James McAuliffe, and they were from the Montgomery County Police Department. A double murder in their jurisdiction was not something that they were used to handling, so the police chief called the Washington, D.C. Police Department and the Baltimore Police Department to send help because they had more resources, they had uh, more knowledge of murder investigations. So you had a a three-way departmental assist going on in this case. Well, James Mitchell was laying on the floor of the locked money cage and my great uncle Emery Smith was nowhere to be found. His car was parked out front. It was locked. His 45 caliber handgun was there. His overcoat was there along with his hat and his lunch that he never touched. So they initiated a search around the area and after a couple of hours they couldn't find him anywhere. So rumors started circulating. Was Emery Smith in on it? Was this an inside job? What happened? Well, they kept searching, and eventually a school bus driver came south on Connecticut Avenue, saw blood in the snow at the Rock Creek Bridge, just about a mile north, reported that to the detectives when he saw all the police cars at the ticket office. They went and looked down the embankment, and they found my great-uncle Emery floating face down about 100 yards away from the bridge, and he'd been shot four times in the head. James Mitchell had been shot three times in the head. So immediately for me as a detective, I went, oh, that's overkill. That's overkill. And when I started reading the file, I went, it seems to me they may have known who did this. So the inside job rumor, I started thinking, wow, it, it, It does sound kind of like an inside job because I think the victims knew the suspects. And that's when I started my investigation. 
they were killed with the same gun, right? A 1903 32 caliber Colt semi-automatic. Yes, they were killed with the same gun. As a matter of fact, not to get too deep into the reconstruction, I reconstructed the entire scenario of James Mitchell's murder uh, using my knowledge and photographs and newspaper clippings that were sent to me by family members that they happened to keep all of those years. And um, I surmised that five rounds were spent on the murder of James Mitchell. One was a live round and then four casings left on the floor. And then they actually emptied the gun on my uncle Emery. They fired four shots into his head. So the gun was empty. That's really deliberate. That's somebody who knows what they're doing. That's somebody who really had an intent to make sure that these two men were dead and apparently would tell no tales. Right. And one of the odd things about this, of course, is that your great uncle's body had been found a good distance from where he was supposed to be, right? Right. If it had just been some men going in with the intent to rob and kill, he would have been murdered near the car barn where he had been sleeping. That's right. Yeah. What happened is uh, the detectives, even though they were from a little place in Montgomery County, which was really little back then, and they did a really good job. They did a really thorough job and they made a diagram of shoe prints in the snow. It had snowed overnight about six inches. And those fresh shoe prints in the snow and tire tracks were diagrammed. And that diagram was in the case file. It was a boon of information. And there was one set of shoe prints that exited the car barn and stopped abruptly at Connecticut Avenue. And I said, that those are my Uncle Emery's shoe prints. I believe that James Mitchell was killed in the ticket office and my great uncle was in the car barn, heard shouting and gunshots, came running out as the suspects were trying to flee. And because my great uncle recognized one of them, he was forced into the car at gunpoint, killed in the vehicle, and then dumped in the first convenient place to hide his body. And that was Rock Creek, a mile north. Right. Your grandfather was briefly a suspect, right? That's what my dad said. And it was a shock to me that my dad's father, I mean, a man that I revered and adored, and he was a man of very few words. Um, he was funny. He had a twinkle in his eye and you know, he would tell a corny joke and then chuckle. You know, he was a very quiet man and a very, um, you know, he, he went to church and he, he was just a very kind man. And I said, there's no way that my, my grandfather had anything to do with this. And when I read the case file, I was right. Um, he was never brought in as a suspect, never. He was just questioned along with every other employee of the Chevy Chase Lake trolley office. Everybody was brought in and my grandfather was just one of them. So that was quickly dispelled, thank goodness. Um, you know, I, if there was other information, I would have had to go, go down that, that pathway. And I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful that that wasn't the case. It, it was debunked very quickly. We will return after a word from our sponsors. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And back to the interview. Did the police believe right from the start it was an inside job? I don't know that the police had any idea of who may have committed this uh, robbery and murder you know, it was one of those things where it was just so out of the realm of Montgomery County's uh, experiences. You know, th- these are things that happened in Washington, D.C. Th- these aren't things that happened in Chevy Chase. So I don't know that they had a, a huge clue other than it was a robbery. There's the motive was money. Why they have killed these two men. I think that was a conundrum from them for them from the start until they started uh, a few months later sort of weeding through a bunch of different suspects and going, we're not getting anywhere. We're not, we're not making any headway. And they would go back and speak to people at the trolley office, at the car barn, and they started weeding down a few of the suspects. And that's how they started to learn who may have been responsible. But they never came to a conclusion. Now, as this case progressed, was there continual cooperation between Maryland and Washington? Or did fuses start to shorten as frustrations grew over the fact that this was not getting solved? At first, they worked together pretty well. And as the leads kept petering out and they would follow notorious gangsters like this man named Tony the Stinger Cugino. He was a pretty notorious guy who was ahead of a a little gang called the Tri-State Gang, and they were known for robberies and murders across Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. They tracked Tony the Stinger up to Philly, and they got nowhere. You know, they tracked a couple of destitute natives from a rural area in Maryland called Kensington, and they did in-depth interviews with these two guys and got nowhere. They did an 11-day stakeout on a couple of other guys and got nowhere. So, there was a little bit of fractioning off uh, between all of the departments. Uh, the Baltimore detective, Stuart Deal, about six months in, 
he wrote a letter to Montgomery County and just said, listen, I've, I've tried everything that I can, but I have my own cases to handle. So I'm, I'm going to beg off. And he went back to Baltimore. The Washington DC detectives, their names were Frank Brass, Richard McCarty, and Robert Barrett. And they were whole hog. They were all in at first, especially when they went after Tony the Stinger Cugino. That got everybody's attention because he was wanted for all kinds of stuff. And everybody kind of wanted that feather in their cap to bring him down. And when that sort of panned out and, and didn't go anywhere, the Washington detectives started working on their own cases. You know, they had a full plate. But what I found out was the Washington detectives weren't really on the up and up. They weren't as clean as they were leading people to believe. And I believe that the Montgomery County detectives, Theodore Volton, Leroy Rogers, James McAuliffe, started doing a little bit of gunshot detective work on their own. Unfortunately, because they were Montgomery County and the people that they were pursuing lived in Washington, D.C., they had no jurisdiction. They couldn't do anything. They were stuck. And they weren't getting any cooperation from Washington anymore. So, yeah, it, it did fraction. Uh, it, it did fracture uh, after uh, about a year. And everybody was kind of left to their own devices. Yeah. Do, do you know how Tony the Stinger got his um, moniker? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the stinger came from other than the fact that he was really bloodthirsty. He was nasty. Um, he started out in the Augie gang, uh, and then he moved and was with the Purple Gang up in Detroit. He was uh, with Capone in Chicago for a very short time until Capone realized how, how uh, uncontrolled and he couldn't put his hands on Tony the Stinger Cugino. He was just too bloodthirsty and nasty and out of control. So Capone kicked him out, said, get out of here if you know what's good for you. And then Tony the Stinger moved back to Philadelphia and started the Tri-State Gang with uh, Robert Mayus and one other guy. And they were just, they were vicious. They were horrible. And um, so they, they were sort of implicated through the grapevine of the Washington, D.C. rumor mill. But because he was such a big name at the time, and you know, if you brought down Tony the Stinger Cugino, well, you could pretty much guarantee uh, advancement in your own career. And uh, that's kind of why they put so much shoe leather and energy down trying to get this guy. I really don't know that anybody thought that Stinger had done the Chevy Chase robbery and murders. It was it was such a small amount of money. I mean, he's doing deals for 20 grand, bank robberies for 20 grand, 30 grand, $1,400, $1,200. It wouldn't have been worth it to him. And it was such a rural area with this teeny little trolley office in Carbon. It just didn't seem worthwhile for him. So he wasn't on, on my radar for very long, uh, but it was an interesting story to follow. Oh, for sure. So one of the stranger moments for detectives in those first couple of days was when a man named William Clark voluntarily showed up <laughs> at the police station. What was the reason he gave for coming in on his own? And, and what did detectives make of him? William Clark, uh, 
you know, I went into this investigation cold. I didn't know any of these names, but William Clark's name kept popping up in the reports here, there, and everywhere. And I, you know, as a detective, when somebody's name keeps popping up, you kind of go, hmm, maybe this person needs a little more attention, you know? So when I read William Clark's statement and I read the police reports regarding him, I found out that William Clark, on the day of the murder, the day of the murder, he waltzed into DC police headquarters of his own accord to offer himself up for an interview. And I went, who does that? Yeah. <laughs> who inserts themselves in the, the middle of a murder investigation? <laughs> I thought, okay, all right, buddy, what's your story? So I read his statement and it was kind of generic. You know, they, they arrested William Clark uh, once he waltzed in and they held him for three days but they didn't specify what the holding charge was. And I thought, well, how do you hold a guy for three days? And they only talked to him based on the length of the interview, I would say less than an hour, which was odd. I'm like, well, who is this guy? And I found out that he had prior robbery convictions. He had just been arrested on a robbery in October of 1934, just a few months before the car barn robbery and murders. And, um, I thought, okay, let me do some research on this guy. And this is after I had followed up with, oh my gosh, dozens of other suspects. And I saved him for last because he was he was on my radar early, but I set him aside because I wanted to make sure that I I didn't have anybody else out there on the on the perimeter. And William Clark, he was a, he was a character. He was a con man. He was uh, obviously a robbery suspect, and he had been suspected in a number of robberies all over the, the district, but they never seemed to have enough evidence on this guy. And uh, he was married to a woman named Viola, and they had three children. He left Viola and the kids in 1930, and he shacked up with his girlfriend. Her name was Mary Branch. And they lived on Girard Street in D.C., just uh, on the north part of 14th Street. That was a little bit of a rough-and-tumble neighborhood back then. And uh, so William Clark's shacking up with Mary Branch. And I read his statement. I read her statement. And when I started looking and comparing their notes, things weren't adding up. What he said and where he was and where she said he was weren't making sense. So then I started going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole and finding all kinds of information about William Clark. And he became my primary suspect. Yeah, he's really a suspicious character. He owed money all over the place, uh, mm -hmm. alimony, gambling debts. Yep. And you, you pretty much read his interview, the, the, the transcript, word for word, right? On your podcast. Yes, I do, because I wanted the audience to hear exactly what he said. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I, I want to point out, which you, of course, do as you present this case, Clark was an employee of the Capital Transit Company. He worked the location where the murders happened, and he seemed to know everyone there except for one person, your great uncle. He claimed he couldn't remember his name. That's right. William Clark worked at the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office for a month in September of 1934. He was canned when he was arrested for armed robbery. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's, 
that's kind of a clue as a detective going, wow, you lasted a whole month, huh? And he would turn in his money till to James Mitchell, the clerk that was murdered. In his statement, he described my great uncle as, quote, the short, chunky barn man. There was only one short, chunky barn man at Chevy Chase Lake, and that was my Uncle Emery. He was five foot six and weighed 200 pounds. That would be short and chunky. He also denied ever speaking with my great uncle. Well, you, you can't deny speaking with someone you say you don't know. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's all of these little clues. And that's when I started really focusing on William Clark. And not only was he arrested for armed robbery in October of 1934 with his friend and alibi, a man named James Weir, who gave William Clark a very, very um, loose alibi, and I, I use that deliberately, but he was also arrested and his girlfriend, Mary Branch, was arrested after the Chevy Chase murders. And her statement was even more bizarre than William Clark's. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're touching on something that I wanted to ask you about. It, it's such a fascinating twist in this case. When you received these interview transcripts, and again, they had talked to Mary as well, you found something really odd about how Mary's transcript had been folded, right? Right. Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. When I got, they were copies, right? They're not going to send me the original documents. So they made uh, copies of everything in the file. And when I got the copy, at the very bottom of this page, it was a legal size pad. The bottom of the page was folded like an accordion. And obviously I can't unfold it, it's a copy. And I thought, well, what, what's folded over? What, what, what's, what's hid under there? What is, what's under there? So my liaison at the Montgomery County Police Department was kind enough to go down to the basement and pull it open and make another copy of the unfolded paper. And what I found out was, for whatever reason, the part of her interview that was obscured had to do with a police officer who paid William Clark a visit on the night before the murders. And I went, well, wait a minute. Why was that folded over? No other pages were folded over, just that one. And I thought a police officer visited with William Clark. Then I got sort of a, a treasure trove of new reports that I'd never seen before from a former Montgomery County police officer who shipped them to me. And it was a three inch stack of new reports that he happened to have in his basement after working on the case in the 1970s and eighties. And I went, wait a minute, these are original reports. They weren't in the file in the basement of the police department. They were in his basement. So he sent them to me. And in those reports were additional reports that were typewritten from Mary Branch's interview and William Clark's interview. So not only did I have the truncated legal pad scribblings of the detectives, now I had the typewritten notes from Baltimore detective Stuart Deal to compare and contrast. And in the typewritten notes was even more information and it wasn't obscured. A police officer did visit William Clark on Sunday night 
and Mary Branch admitted to it in her interview, and she said the police officer's name sounded like Creek or Greek, and he had blonde hair. But nobody ever tried to find the officer's identity. And I thought, oh, hold on a minute. Why would they not go find out who this police officer was? He visited with William Clark the night before a murder, and William Clark offered himself up for an interview the next day. That's kind of important. So then I started looking at a little bit of the corruption that was going on and a little bit of the underhanded dealings going on, and I found a whole lot more than I bargained for. Right, yes. There are other suspects in this case, of course, uh, many other suspects. And one of them I'd like to ask you about, a man named Robert Janney. Right. And there is a connection between Janney and another sensational murder case that had happened years before, uh, Mary Baker. Right. Would you talk a bit about the Mary Baker case, Janney's connection? and how he first appeared on the radar of detectives investigating the car barn murders. Sure. Robert Janney first appeared as a name in a report from 1936. In 1936, a D.C. jail inmate named Horace Davis wanted to talk to lead detective Theodore Volton. Volton went and met with him at the prison. Horace Davis said that he knew one man who was probably involved in the Carborn case. His name was Walter Oliver. We'll get to him in a minute. He was another suspect. Walter Oliver was good friends with a man named Robert Janney. And basically, according to Horace Davis, this other man, Walter Oliver, confessed. We'll get to that in a minute. So I started looking at Robert Janney. Robert Joseph Janney. He was a violent felon with a number of horrible charges in his past, including being the kingpin of a heroin distribution ring in Washington, D.C., with his mother, of all people. He was involved, uh, he was arrested for a violation of the Mann Act, which was human trafficking back then, Uh, obviously the Harrison Narcotics Act. He was a drunk, Uh, reckless driving, robbery, aggravated assault. He broke his wife's nose. So he was really a nasty, nasty man. And uh, when I saw his name and started looking at Robert Janney, I was pulling up newspaper articles and, and doing searches. I found out that he had been brought in as a suspect in an extraordinarily notorious murder in Washington that's still unsolved. And that was the Mary Baker murder case. Mary Baker was murdered. She was shot, strangled, sexually assaulted, and beaten and her body was left in a ditch at Arlington National Cemetery. And that case is still unsolved. And back in the day, it was sensational, and there were uh, True Detective Magazine articles written about it in the moment by one of the investigators. This is kind of one of the things that they would do to make money on the side, is they would write these sensational true crime detective articles and then get paid to have them published. And I actually purchased the entire story. And it, it was called The Mystery of 101 Clues because they were following all kinds of leads and never actually found out who killed her. And Robert Janney's name was mentioned. He was arrested as a suspect in the Mary Baker murder. 
but he had an alibi of being in New York City and the police found a pawn ticket in his room that substantiated that alibi. So he was released from custody on the Mary Baker murder, but he was arrested in, I think it was September of 1935 for another robbery. And he got an eight year prison sentence for that one. So he was really a, a nasty man. And once I connected Robert Janney, his friend, Walter Oliver, and my primary suspect, William Clark, I found out that the three of them were friends. Now that wasn't uh, readily apparent in the notes. I kind of had to do some deep digging to put these three together. And once I found out that they were in cahoots, they were friends, and I had all kinds of evidence against all three of them, I started using all of my research skills and the information that I was finding to put them as the nexus for this case and name all three of them as the primary perpetrators and the suspects in my great uncle and James Mitchell's murders. Another brief break, back after these messages. We have returned once more. And while we're on the subject of horrific acts of violence towards women, poor Mary Branch, right? Mm -hmm. Just a few months after she tells detectives what she knows, she goes through an absolutely brutal experience. Can you share with my listeners what happened to her? Sure. This was the turning point in my investigation. Through all the files, hundreds of pages, all of the investigation, all of the statements and interviews and information that I had, nothing about this next crime was mentioned anywhere. Not one word. And as I went through the newspaper articles on William Clark, you know, you, you look up William Clark and his last name was spelled with an E, which was a godsend for me because it sort of weeded through a lot of different things. And you have to look, you have to cross-reference, make sure it's the right William Clark. Well, it was. Yeah. I found a newspaper article that William Clark took Mary Branch for a ride. He goaded her to get into his car at two o'clock in the morning in May of 1935. This is about five months after the murders. He drove Mary Branch to a very rural and desolate part of Maryland. And he stopped the car. He beat her senseless with a blackjack. Now that's a lead weight wrapped in a leather strap. Beat her in the head. As she was pretty much unconscious, he took her body and threw her over a 35-foot bridge into the Patapsco River and left her for dead. He drove back to the apartment on Gerard Street to his new girlfriend, who was there waiting for him. Well, what William Clark didn't know is that Mary Branch was quite a resilient woman. And although he left her for dead in this river, she crawled out. And she found a man who lived in a shack on the river's edge. His name was Sylvester Kugel, and he saved her life. Sylvester Kugel drove Mary Branch to the emergency hospital, and she survived. She lived. William Clark got the news from his cousin later that morning, and he turned sheet white, and he panicked. <laughs> yeah. The reason that William Clark tried to kill Mary Branch was because she knew too much. She knew everything. And apparently, 
Mary Branch found out about Clark's new girlfriend, and of all people that she told about it, it was Francis Gregory, the man who was sleeping on the bench in the trainman's room during the murder of James Mitchell. And that's how I found out that Francis Gregory was friends with William Clark and Mary Branch. So that is the turning point of my investigation, and I knew that William Clark was my primary perpetrator as soon as I found that, and I couldn't find information on him fast enough. Was William Clark arrested for this attempted murder of Mary? He was. Um, He was arrested, and it was a speedy trial. Within a month, he was in front of the judge, and he represented himself in court because he couldn't afford an attorney. And the judge found him guilty after Mary Branch testified against him. She told the whole story, which the newspaper reporters very kindly reported in toto. (laughs) So he was sentenced to eight years in the Maryland State Penitentiary in June of 1935. And in September of that year, he was joined by none other than Robert Janney after his arrest for armed robbery. So they were in the Maryland State Penitentiary together. Wow. So going back to Walter Oliver for a moment, what kind of a guy was Walter Oliver? Walter Oliver, he's a little bit of an anomaly. I had a really hard time finding information about him, but what I did find out is that he was friends with Robert Janney and William Clark. Walter Oliver was... uh, He had a a speakeasy that he ran on E Street in D.C., and he opened an electrical shop with uh, what I consider to be the spoils after the robbery and murders. That electrical shop was in Capitol Heights, which is sort of an outskirt of the district. And as soon as Detective Volton went to Capitol Heights to start asking around about Walter Oliver, suspiciously, his electrical shop burned to the ground just a couple of days later. Wow. So Oliver was a little bit of an anomaly, but through the the, uh, D.C. jail inmate, Horace Davis, who came forward in 1936, Horace Davis uh, signed a sworn affidavit. So this wasn't just a statement. This was a sworn affidavit, and he also offered to testify in court should he be asked. And what's curious is Horace Davis didn't ask for a quid pro quo. He didn't ask to get out of jail early. He just asked to be transferred to a different institution because he was scared for his life after talking about this. I don't blame him. But he talked about Walter Oliver. Walter Oliver picked Horace Davis up at the corner of 10th and E Street, right by Ford's Theater, in August of 1935. And they had been in the penitentiary together before, so they knew each other. And Horace Davis said that Walter Oliver confessed to pulling the car barn job. He also said they killed, quote, the man in the creek, meaning my great-great-uncle, because he recognized one of the suspects, Walter Oliver said, well, um, what is it? He said something along the lines of, we might as well have killed a hundred after killing one, meaning James Mitchell. He said they went northbound on Connecticut Avenue, which was the direction of the Rock Creek Bridge. And, you know, this was just like information that only a participant would know that Horace Davis was now parroting to Detective Volton. So when I started finding out the nefarious things that Walter Oliver was into, the horse racing wire racket, the speakeasy, 
He was dealing in hot cars. He had seven cars in his yard. <laughs> and only one, right? Registered to his name. <laughs> only one. And the one that was registered to him was a Hup Coupe, which is exactly the same car that Horace Davis described when he talked about it. Um, what's really funny is, you know, Detective Volton didn't believe Horace Davis, thought he was full of it. And Horace Davis goes, I'll prove it to you. And Horace Davis admitted to an unknown robbery that he had committed in 1933 with Walter Oliver. They robbed some bootlegger of a few bucks. Well, Volton went and found this bootlegger, confronted him with the information from Horace Davis, and the bootlegger went, I've never told anybody that story. Who told you that? And then Volton knew that Horace Davis was telling the truth. <laughs> so it was kind of this really neat way that they would go and verify stories that they found to be bunk and then find it to be true. But what was really odd about Walter Oliver is I found in the case file from the U.S. District Attorney's Office, it was an indictment. U.S. District Attorney, the United States versus Walter Oliver et al. and others that weren't named. So they were actually going after Walter Oliver for the murders, but nothing ever came of it. It went away. Walter Oliver was never interviewed. Robert Janney was never interviewed. And after William Clark's initial interview, he was never re-interviewed. So that got me thinking, hold on a minute. You have three suspects here with multi-level inculpatory evidence against them, and they were never re-interviewed and never re-arrested? Why? And then I found the reason why the one man who became the nexus for the entire case. Right, right. You, you, you've probably seen the movie Copland? Oh, gosh, years ago. I don't remember much about it. it it's about this small-town sheriff in New Jersey who is unraveling this cover-up by a handful of corrupt New York City cops. And, and this car barn case kind of reminded me of that. You've got Maryland Detective Volton and his partners with uh, very few resources uh, who, who seem to be up against powerful people in Washington, D.C. A large conspiracy apparently in place right. protecting people in positions of authority. Yes. And, and I wondered, and I'm sure maybe you have too, the case is officially unsolved. And all I'm doing is asking you to put your mind into somebody else who's, who's long deceased. But, but do you think Volton might have figured it out? solve the case in his own head? I do. And I, I, I really do think that Theodore Volton, Leroy Rogers, and James McAuliffe knew exactly who did it, and they couldn't get traction because they didn't have jurisdiction. Um, yeah, I do think that they could have solved it in 36. I think they probably did. They knew who did it. They just couldn't, they couldn't get cooperation. Yeah, I think they know exactly who did it. Right. So there was one eyewitness. Could you talk briefly about what he saw? Sure. The eyewitness, his name was Ernest Carter, and he was found by a uh, Montgomery County officer in 1977 just on a happenstance meeting on a cold November night at the Chevy Chase Country Club. The officer was doing his paperwork. Uh, Ernest Carter walked over. He was an elderly gentleman at that point, and they started talking, and... Ernest Carter said, well, you know, 
you know about the murders down there down the road at the trolley office? And the officer's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And Ernest Carter proceeded to tell the officer that he was seven years old in 1935, and he was waiting for the trolley at the hot dog stand across the street. He heard gunshots and shouting. He saw two men run out of the ticket office and get into a green Buick, driven by a third man, and go northbound on Connecticut Avenue. Interestingly, a green Buick was the only stolen car that was never recovered from the D.C. area that night. It was stolen from the area of 15th and Irving Streets, two blocks away from William Clark's apartment. So Ernest Carter was a huge wealth of information as far as the getaway car and why they had to store it away. You know, once they killed Emory Smith, my great great uncle, the car became a liability. There were bloodstains all over it. There was broken glass. One of the windows had been shattered by a bullet. So that car was a huge liability. And I found out through the reports and a report that I didn't know existed until late in my investigation. uh, It was written in 1954 by Detective Volton. He came out of retirement and wrote this new report with new information. And that report stated that the car had been parked in a back alley garage at 7th and N Streets Northwest Volton and a female confidential informant went looking for it and never found it. So the car was never found. So it kind of tied in with this ex-police sergeant who was named by Mary Branch inadvertently in 1935 and then named again by the confidential informants in 1954. And that man became uh, the central figure as to why this case was never solved. And his name was Jonas Willard Green. And he was a former sergeant with the Washington, D.C. police force. And he had quite a story. And Green sounds an awful lot like Greek or Creek, right? Creek or Greek, and Jonas Willard Green had blonde hair, and he lived two blocks south of William Clark's apartment. (laughs) So the way that I figured this out was the 1954 report did not name Jonas Willard Green. The only thing it said was ex-Sergeant Green with an E, Green with an E, but he was named 12 times, 12 times in this report. So I had a friend of mine who's a really great researcher. I gave her what I knew uh, that ex-Sergeant Green was on the D.C. police force, and he died in 1950. That's all we had. And a couple of hours after I gave her the info, Stephanie White, she popped off an email to me in all caps saying I found him. And she did. Jonas Willard Green was on the D.C. police force at the turn of the century, and he (laughs) became a millionaire. And in his way of telling it, he did it by saving every penny of a $75 a month sergeant salary. (laughs) Well, come to find out that he married his wife, uh, Gertrude Pond, and her father was a very wealthy businessman, had a cigar store, and he was very elite in the Gilded Age of D.C. And Jonas Willard Green came to own all kinds of apartment buildings, the Alexander Shepard Mansion 
and all kinds of different businesses all over DC. And what I found out through the census records was most of the residents of his rooming houses were young single women with no legitimate means of, of supporting themselves, which was a beeline to prostitution. So he's running boarding houses, houses of prostitution. He's likely a loan shark. And there's a whole lot of information about Jonas Willard Green that I found. Um, he opened a business after getting essentially fired from the DC police force for being corrupt. Um, he was followed by a number of inspectors for a week and you don't put out that kind of energy and force unless there's something really wrong with, with this person. I found out that he was actually the sergeant over all of the vice. <laughs> and apparently he wasn't really good at hiding it. And he was flaunting his wealth and flaunting his money and driving his personal limousine on duty. And I think after a national news story about Green's dubious wealth hit the AP Newswire, the D.C. police had had enough and they got rid of him. So he ended up opening a high-end clothing business that went bankrupt. And about a week before a final bankruptcy hearing, it went up in flames. <laughs> so that was kind of a fire for hire and insurance fraud. Um, you know, he's running houses of prostitution. He's got all of these little things. And it was really fascinating to find out who this man really was. And when I found out that his name was in the 1954 report, that Mary had referred to Creek or Greek police officer in 1935. I put the pieces together. Now I had to link Jonas Willard Green with William Clark. And the way that I did that was William Clark in his statement to police, the one that he did give, he mentioned that his friend and alibi, a man named James Weir had a business called the shingle shop beauty parlor. And that was on F street. 1318 F Street Northwest. Jonas Willard Green, after his high-end clothing business went up in flames, he opened a hair salon called Green's Company Incorporated in the exact same place. So I found out that Green's Company Incorporated and James Weir's shingle shop were the same business. And they were a front for his prostitution gig and likely a place where young women in the depression needed work and would come there and look for work and end up in one of his rooming houses. So oh now gosh. I had the direct connection. Jonas Willard Green had that hair salon business. The 1954 report said that William Clark attended a meeting about the robbery at Green's beauty salon. Now I had the direct connection between William Clark and Jonas Willard Green. What I also found out about Jonas Willard Green was not only was he a very influential elite with friends in the Senate and Congress and the district attorney's office by virtue of his money and by who he was. He was also the cousin of the district commission president and his name was Melvin Hazen. Melvin Hazen was directly appointed to that position as the district commission president by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he huh. wined and dined with the president. All of his friends were in Congress and the Senate, the district attorney. So because Melvin Hazen and Jonas Willard Green were hooked in with the right people and these people who were taking graft and taking all this money from all of the vice going on, William Clark was shielded from prosecution by virtue of his connection to Jonas Willard Green and Melvin Hazen, because if he was arrested for the Carbon murders, 
he would run his mouth and the entire corruption payoff and graft system would collapse. Jonas Willard Green would be exposed. Melvin Hazen would be exposed. It was so much better to just let sleeping dogs lie and bury the case, which is why it was never solved. Wow, goodness, good work on figuring this all out. So yeah, there's a ton we still haven't talked about. Uh, You present the case at the end of of season two of your podcast, Shattered Souls. You, You state specifically what you think happened, what all went down that morning of January 21st. Yeah. Uh, lots more to hear, and your podcast is very easy to subscribe to. And there are so many strange characters involved in this story yeah. that sort of lurk in the corners. It's a saga. It's, it's, I mean, 17 episodes. It's a long walk. And, you know, I wanted to put the whole story out for the listeners. And at the end, I, I give my literal prosecutorial summary on all three suspects. And I let the audience decide, you know, the public jury. And every single vote, I opened up a poll on my Facebook page, and every single vote was guilty for all three of them. So I knew that I had the right people. And uh, I wrote a 51-page report, which I have submitted to the Montgomery County Police Department. They're deciding now on administrative closure. But as far as the public's eye goes, putting that out to the public jury was a little nerve-wracking for me. But when I found out that it was 100% guilty, I said, I know I have the right guys. I've actually spoken with family members of William Clark. They agree with me. Family members of Jonas Willard Green, they agree with me. Family members of Francis Gregory, they agree with me. And my entire family knows. So it's in my heart and in the public's eye, the case is solved. It's just one little small hurdle of whether or not the uh, department wants to deem it administratively closed or not. And that's their decision. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders, it's on Apple, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts, and I would appreciate some listens and some feedback. So briefly tell us, if if you would, about season one, which is very different from season two, but extremely compelling. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Season one is called Shattered Souls, again. It's a forensic detective's diary, and I took six of my own homicide cases And I detailed everything from my response to the scene, how I forensically worked through them all the way to the courtroom. And it's sort of a lesson in forensics. If you're a forensic person or you watch the CSI shows, this is real life. This was what I went through, what I, how I pieced evidence together and then how it went through the courtroom. There's real courtroom testimony. There's stuff from my reports. I describe everything and I I speak to some family members of the victims and it's just sort of a, a lesson in how an actual crime goes through the process. And it was really interesting to do. Um, I thought I would get some catharsis out of it, but it was kind of the opposite. I had to relive everything that, that I went through, and some of them are pretty heart-wrenching. Uh, if you listen, you'll, you'll hear. Um, but I took many different demographics and many different cases that you wouldn't normally hear on the mainstream media. And I wanted to call attention to the victims of those crimes because I think it's important to get their stories out too. And I have to ask you, uh, do you anticipate a season three? I think so. I'm working a case right now out of New Zealand, of all places. Um, 
it was a little three-year-old boy named Lachlan Jones who was found deceased in an oxidation pond about three quarters of a mile from his home. It was deemed immediately to be an accidental drowning, but unfortunately, um, all of the leads that I've found so far are not pointing that direction. And this week, it sort of blew sky high. And I am working directly with the New Zealand coroner on this case. I've submitted over 200 pages of, of documentation in my report, and I'm waiting to hear back if the coroner wants to reopen the case or call for an inquest. We're sort of in limbo right now. So that's another case I'm working, and that may be season three. Right now, I'm still working on the case in chief, and I, I don't have time to do both. So if that happens, I will be sure and let you know, Eric, and, and maybe we can do a show on that. It's, it's a new case, which is not sort of your genre, but I will let you know regardless. For sure, yeah. Well, I'll put all the important information about how people can subscribe to your podcast in the show notes. You bet. And thanks for the platform. I, I love your podcast. I, I'm a history buff now, now that I've gone through all these things and found all this cool stuff. That's great. Welcome. You've got some really uh, incredible stories on your podcast. So this is a thrill. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, well, this has been marvelous. Thank you so much for going through all of this with us. Sure. Again, I have been speaking to Karen Smith. She is the host of Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders, available on your favorite podcast listening app. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.